You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. As I say, this is a familiar story, I'm sure, for many of you here. Naaman was a great man. He was a commander of uh, Syria's army. He's someone who was admired and respected by all. Wherever he went, he was fussed over. People uh, bragged about his great military exploits. He was wined and dined wherever he went. He was a local celebrity. If he had been alive today, he would have been uh, fated for his autograph or for a selfie. He would have been in the latest talk shows. People would just want to rub shoulders with him and be identified with him. Uh, He certainly would have been named in the New Year's honors list and so on. Celebrity status, uh, however, of course, does not isolate a person from the problems of life and from the trials of life. And we discover here in the very first verse of our reading that Naaman had a problem in spite of his uh, abilities and, and uh, his success and his fame, he had a big problem, and it's, it comes after that word, but. His exploits are, are set out before us, and then it says, but. But Naaman had leprosy. Now, that doesn't hit us with the same impact that it would have hit people in, in Naaman's day. Uh, leprosy in those days was the equivalent, the modern equivalent of someone getting news that they have terminal cancer, for instance. And we know from looking at our newspapers and keeping up to date with the news every day that there, there are celebrities out there and, and everything seems to be going great and they're making plenty of money and having great success, and then we read something has happened and and they've been diagnosed with a terminal illness. And suddenly, all their fame, their money, their influence makes very little difference to them. And it doesn't matter how much sympathy that, you know, the general public has for them. There's this but in their life, but. Their days are limited. Their time is short. And maybe there's some of you here today can identify with that. Maybe not personally, but someone in your family. For years, maybe your your family has just been going through life and everything's been hunky-dory. You know, everything, life's been a breeze. And then suddenly, telephone call. After, you know, you've been for some tests and there's a telephone call, the doctor wants you to come in. And in the twinkling of an eye, your life has changed forever. The life of your family has changed forever. Well, that's what it was like for Naaman. He had all this fame and success, and suddenly his whole world has come crashing around him. 
His military exploits, his, his fame and fortune means nothing now because he had leprosy. And that meant that he was going to die a slow, agonizing death. But suddenly, Naaman found himself the focus of a remarkable chain of events. A little girl who had been brought back from Israel as a slave for his wife had an interesting story to tell. She said, there's a prophet in Israel who could heal Naaman of his leprosy. It sounded too good to be true, but, but Naaman decided to mention it to the king of Syria. And the, and the king says, well, surely, you know, like, like go. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll send a letter uh, with you to, to, the, to the king of Israel. And, and he dispatches him to the king of Israel. Now, of course, the king of Israel is absolutely flabbergasted when, when he read the letter because it, it seemed that, that Syria's king was, was expecting him, the king of Israel, to heal Naaman, and, and, and he thought that the king of Syria was, was trying to, to pick a fight with him. And, and so he tore his robes as, as a sign of distress. Well, Elisha hears about the king tearing his robes, and he says, look, tell the king of Israel, or say to the, uh, to the king of Syria to send him to me, so they'll know there's a prophet in Israel. So, so that's the background. Let me... Let me, I want to just look at this story under four headings. Here's the first one. A cure offered and rejected. A cure offered and rejected. These chain of events leads Naaman at long last to the house of Elisha. And that's where we find him from verses 8 to 15 of our reading. Naaman didn't have to wait long. The prophet soon sent his servant out with this message in verse 10. Do you see it there? Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored to you and you'll be cleansed. Now just stop and think for a moment about what's happening here in this scene. Here's Naaman with the most dreaded disease of his time a disease for which there was absolutely no cure apart from divine intervention. And here, on the other hand, is the prophet telling him that God was going to intervene on his behalf if he would simply go down to the River Jordan and wash seven times. Now, what would you have done in Naaman's place? Wouldn't you have thanked the servant of Elisha for delivering the message, asked him to thank Elisha and his God for the cure, and you would have headed post-haste for the banks of the River Jordan to jump in seven times. But that was not Naaman's reaction. Instead of graciously thanking Elisha and rushing to the Jordan, he throws a hissy fit. You know, he has a tantrum. He flew into a rage. Can you imagine it? A terminally ill man is told of a cure that is available for his illness, and he's enraged by it. He turns away from it. How silly, how childish. A cure offered and rejected. 
Second heading, the reason for the rejection. What possessed Naaman to do such a thing? Well, we don't have to search long for an answer to that question because Naaman gives it to us in verses 11 to 13. Read it with me. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than any of the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? And so he turned and went off in a rage. And it's all summarized in two little words in verse 11. Do you notice them? He says, I thought. I thought. In other words, Naaman came to Elisha with certain preconceived ideas in his mind. He had it all worked out ahead of time. He had in his own mind and with his own wisdom determined exactly how Elisha would go about the business of effecting the cure. It was not enough for him to have his leprosy cured. He wanted it cured in a way that accommodated his preconceptions and his own wisdom. And when Elisha's servant came out and announced what he must do, well, Naaman's wisdom was violated and, and his preconceptions were shattered. I, wa I wonder, wonder what it was he was thinking as he came up to Elisha's door. Well, well, I think it was that any cure that Elisha proposed surely would take into account his dignity and his standing in the world. In other words, as one, as one commentator uh, puts it, Naaman wanted to be treated like a great man who happened to have leprosy. But Elisha's cure treated him as a leper who happened to be a great man. And there's a great difference between those two, between being treated as a great man who happened to have leprosy or a leper who happened to be a great man. And the cure Elisha proposed not only ignored Naaman's greatness, it also went out of its way to humble him. And, and we see three things here. First of all, <clears throat> Elisha didn't even extend to him the courtesy of going out to meet him. <coughs> Verse 11 tells us that, that Elisha sent out his servant to meet him. Elisha wasn't interested in his greatness. Elisha didn't want his autograph. Elisha didn't want a selfie with him. Secondly, Elisha, Elisha's cure completely ignored the fact that Naaman had brought an enormous fortune with him to pay for the cure. You see the things that Naaman brought with him there listed in verse 5? Naaman didn't come empty-handed. Elisha ignored that. The cure was the result of God's grace, and there was therefore no place for, for Naaman's gold and silver or clothing. And the third thing is, the cure required him to do something that he personally found to be undesirable and even repulsive, namely to bathe in the waters of the Jordan, as he says there in verse 12. 
And this offended Naaman on two grounds. First, the Jordan was a muddy, filthy river. And he didn't think it fitting for someone of his standing to have to go and stoop so low as to bathe in such a river. On top of that, secondly, it violated Naaman's national pride. To his way of thinking, if the cure was just a matter of bathing in a river, well, look, the rivers in his own country were far better than this river Jordan in this foreign country. And besides this, bathing was something that any child could do. Naaman had come prepared to do something great, as his servants reminded him in verse 13. And the prophet asked him to do something trivial, something simple. Well, it begs the question, what is all this to do with us in the 21st century here living in the Western world? Well, the super truth is that there are multitudes, I believe, who are doing exactly the same as Naaman. And that brings me to my three, third heading, the error of Naaman repeated. The error of Naaman repeated. You see, the Bible tells us that we are all affected and afflicted with this dreadful, deadly disease far, far more deadly than leprosy, far, far more deadly than any terminal illness, the disease of sin. And, you know, unlike cancer, which <clears throat> people say now will eventually affect one and two, sin affects everyone, every man, woman, and child, far more deadly than, than Naaman's leprosy doesn't just affect our physical bodies. It can lead to our eternal damnation. The Bible also tells us that there is absolutely no cure for sin except through divine intervention. There is no cure apart from divine intervention. <clears throat> There's no cure within ourselves. There's nothing that we can do. But wonder of wonders. The Bible also says that God has intervened and he has made a cure available in and through the person of his son, the Lord Jesus. That's why it's called the good news, the gospel. This Christ, by his perfect life, through his atoning death, has done everything that is necessary so that our sins can be covered, so that they can be forgiven, so that people like you and me can have eternal life, can have our sin dealt with, can have it blotted out, can have our guilt taken away, can be adopted into the family of God. Now, isn't that incredibly glorious good news. Is that not the best news you've ever heard in your life? That your sin can be dealt with. A cure is available for our sins. Now, one would think the overwhelming majority of people would fall over themselves to embrace the gospel, this gospel cure, and assure themselves 
of an eternity in heaven. But, but amazingly enough, there are multitudes. Multitudes who do as Naaman did. Some here, even, today. Some of you, after hearing the good news of a cure, turn away. It's not, it's not that you don't need a cure for sin. You do. And, and it's not that a cure is not available. It is. Why then do so many, even here, turn away from this cure? Well, I'll tell you why. The answer is that the gospel offends them. It offends them. It violates their wisdom and their sense of dignity. It doesn't take into account, they think, who they are. It doesn't take into account their ability, their social standing, their education. You see, this gospel says that all without exception are in sin. All. doesn't matter who you are, where you are in your social standing. All without exception are in sin, are under God's curse. And it also says that there is absolutely nothing that we can do to earn salvation. There's nothing we can do to deserve salvation. We are entirely dependent on the grace and mercy of God. And the trouble is, we want to come before God with Naaman's shackles and changes of clothing. We want God to accept us on the basis of who we are and what we have done. But just as Elisha ignored Naaman's wealth and ignored Naaman's dignity, so God refuses all our attempts to stand before him on the basis of our own merits or accomplishments. Furthermore, the gospel requires that we do something that seems ludicrous and even repugnant. It tells us that we need to bow in repentance and faith before the Lord Jesus. We need to humble ourselves before him. We need to come to him and acknowledge that we need him, and without him we're lost. And that offends many. They find that offensive. They look at that bloody cross and they find themselves thinking there must be another way. A way that is more sophisticated. A way that is more appealing. A way that <clears throat> acknowledges me and what I've done. And they, like Naaman, have no trouble in thinking of other things that make more sense. But the Spirit of God points unrelentingly at that cross as the one and only cure, the one and only way of salvation. 
Now, no generation has been <clears throat> more impressed with human wisdom and human dignity than our own. Our age is obsessed with human rights and equality. That's not to say that there's not a legitimate place for such concerns. We're all made in the image of God, and this does indeed give every human being a basic dignity and provides the basis for human rights. But the proper place for emphasizing human dignity is in our relationship with each other, not in our relationship to God. Human dignity is fine among human beings, but it is insufficient when it comes to standing before the Lord. Our dignity comes from God, but we must never, never use it as an excuse for not bowing before him for not surrendering to him. And many have trouble making that distinction. And so when the gospel confronts them with its demand for submission, the spirit of Naaman can easily come to life in them. Well, let's get back to Naaman and our fourth heading, the acceptance of Naaman. Fortunately, we're told in the story that his servants saw that he was foolishly turning away from the only hope he had of a cure, and so they began to reason with him. And their reasoning was so simple. If Elisha had asked him to perform some extraordinary feat, he would not have hesitated to attempt it. Why then was he hesitating at doing something so simple? And at last, Naaman saw his stupidity, and agreed to go to Jordan. And there he completely obeyed the word of the Lord through Elisha, and immediately after the seventh washing, his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. Verse 14 tells us. Now, what did Naaman do when he saw his flesh? Did he leap for joy? Did he, did he hug his servants? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us. But one thing it does say is that he made his way back to Elisha's house. How different things were on that second visit. This time the prophet saw him. The prophet came out to him. And this time Naaman has different words on his lips. Instead of saying, I thought, which he said at the first coming to his house, when he spoke to Elisha's servant, I thought, instead of saying that, he says now in verse 15, I know. Do you see it there? Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. I know. What a great lesson there is here, isn't there? If we ever want to be able to say, I know, then we must stop saying, I thought, or I think, or in my opinion. In other words, if we ever want to have the joy and the peace and the confidence that the gospel brings, we must stop arguing with God, and we must accept the gospel as the only cure for sin, which it is. 
Accept it for what it is. It's the truth. There is no other way. No other way. I am the way, Jesus said. The way. Not one of many ways. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. doesn't matter how good you are. doesn't matter how bad you are. No one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus said. That's an exclusive claim that he makes. And so we must stop standing on our dignity and our wisdom and bow before the wisdom of God in Christ Jesus. I'm not telling you anything that you haven't been told before. I'm not explaining anything here that hasn't been explained to you, probably from, from you were a child. But do you understand it? Do you understand it? Do you understand what's being offered here? You know, we, we do understand it in terms of, of physical illness, don't we? If somebody is desperately ill and, and, and suddenly there's, there's a cure has been found and, and applied, you know, remember when the pandemic was on and they were working on a vaccine and they discovered that this vaccine could give you protection. How thankful we were about that. We all queued up and they jabbed us. I don't know how many times we've been stabbed. But we do it because there's a cure there. But that's only about our life, which has got a limited number of days. And we're all a fair bit through those number of days. And those days are coming to an end. What then? What then? Do you understand the significance of this? There is only one way to God. Only one way. Not one of many ways. And it's not our way, but his way. Through the Lord Jesus. Do you remember how he began his ministry? Mark's gospel is the most immediate gospel. It's, it's full of action. It's interesting. I think it's in the authorized version how, how often that word immediately occurs. Immediately he did this. Immediately he did this. But it, Mark doesn't tell you anything about the birth of Jesus. But it tells you about his public ministry and how it began. And how did it begin? How did it begin? He began to preach, repent, and believe the good news. That's what he preached. Repent and believe the good news. And were people, when people were thronging uh, uh, after him, you know, to come and cure people, to heal them of their various diseases, he said, I must go and preach. I must go and preach. Because a physical cure only affects this life. You know, I remember uh, reading the biography of Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones because he was, he was a medical doctor and he was a specialist in Harley Street before he went into the ministry. He was a medical genius. And, and people were amazed that, that he would give that up to take on the, uh, being pastor of a little church in Wales 
in the back of beyond. Why would you do that? Think of the number of people that, that you can cure. And he said, but it would only cure them for a while. And then they would die. And then where would they go? But I have the words here to share of eternal life. And so he devoted his life to preaching this good news. And, and you and I have the privilege, the privilege of living in a land where this gospel message is proclaimed freely to us all. Naaman. Naaman is one, you know, you think of the miracles in the Bible. Really, there aren't very many of them. If you think about the time that it covers through the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's, there's very limited number. And Naaman, I mean, imagine, Naaman. I, I mean, he wasn't, even, he wasn't even an Israelite. Imagine the mercy of God reaching this man. And yet here we are offered the mercy of God to the whosoever will believe. To you and me. What a privilege. Now what are you doing with it? Are you going to do what, what Naaman did and, and, and you know have a hissy fit and, and reject? Or are you going to embrace eternal life as it's offered to us in the gospel? Let's pray. Mm-hmm.